Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at CalEndow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health dash equity. From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. On today's show, we learn about the life story of Art Williams, who went from working in Bakersfield's agricultural fields to becoming the first black umpire in baseball's National League. And later, Fresno State students chart the history of the local LGBTQ community in a new podcast. But first, let's head to the small rural town of Woodlake in Tulare County. It's where we started our podcast, The Other California, three months ago, and it's where we're wrapping it up. Host Alice Daniel goes to the Bravo Lake Botanical Garden, where founders Olga and Manuel Jimenez talk about the joy of the natural world and the power of story in helping us understand each other. I hadn't been back to the garden since I reported on it during the worst of the pandemic, when the couple lit candles each week for every single person who had died from COVID in Tulare County. At one point, they had more than 800 luminaries set along a winding path, bits of light in the heavy darkness of sorrow. But today, when I walk in, the garden is open and full of life, the Sierra Nevada hovering in the distance. Pink and magenta hollyhocks have popped up everywhere. Hundreds of rose bushes are in bloom. I find Manuel standing under the shady umbrella of a very large tree, a Pakistani mulberry. A frequent visitor, Bronca Chosich, is picking some of the berries and popping them in her mouth. This is a special long type of fruit, a couple of inches long, uh, and it's sweet as... I don't know, honey. (laughs) It's beautiful. She tells me her story. She moved to Tulare County in 1992 to escape the Bosnian War. She visits the garden as often as she can, she says. The tree reminds her of home. In our country, people would, or kids, would just like climb on trees and Uh, because there is in cities a lot of fruit trees planted and kids would just like climb and pick whatever there is, you know, berries or um, fruit trees like that, or even like linden tree for teas. Everything was available to everyone. And that was in Serbia. Bronca reaches out for one of the branches. I'll pick one for you. I'm just going to pull branches down. but And hands me a mulberry. I take a bite. It's delicious. You don't have to wash it. <laughs> so good. Mm. I love it. We're not the only animals who love the fruit, Manuel says. He shows me another tree nearby. There are three Oriole nests. And, you know, you seldom see one, but they look like little socks, little brown socks. Just right up above us. And the grackles are in this tree, too, in much larger nests. The birds build them just in time to feed their babies ripe mulberries. But yeah, this is a popular tea in the garden. Lots of birds feed on it. Manuel and I walk over to the western edge of the rose garden to find his wife, Olga. In our Woodlake episode, a young man, Rogelio Chavez, interviewed Olga They're more than 50 years apart in age, but both know something about farm labor. Olga told Rogelio stories about what it was like to work in the fields as a kid, starting at age six. Those stories from her past still inform how she processes events today. We sit down on a bench and our conversation turns to the war in Ukraine. She worries so much about the children there because she understands what it's like to be afraid. Because I remember as a child, when my father was uh, running away from the border patrol and running away and trying to hide us. And as a child, you live in fear and you don't have no security. You don't know what that's about. You just know fear. 
I ask her what she turns to for comfort during tough times. In these hard times, I find myself navigating towards the garden. The garden gives me so much peace, so much um, tranquility that you tend to forget the outside world. She says she pays a lot of attention to the behavior of animals and insects. A bunch of bees on a flower, and you're wondering, now why are they all together? Why, you know, they're working together. I seem to like all that, that creatures show us how things should be done. The garden and the wildlife are in perfect balance these days, Manuel says. It gives him time to think about his next project, one that will provide more context to the history of agriculture in the valley and the role small farmers and farm workers play. And over the years, there's been hundreds of thousands of farm workers in California and, and, and in this region and in this town that have been responsible for the success of agriculture. He wants to add signs along the garden paths that tell the stories of the people who have worked this land. When we learn the stories of each other, he knows, we can better understand. Like Olga, Manuel also grew up working in the fields, migrating with his nine siblings and his parents up and down California, following the harvest. He says most of the Hispanic kids in school would leave in May and be gone for four or even five months. But when you went to school, you know, the first thing the teacher would ask you when you were a little kid is, that, what did you do for summer vacation? And the easy answer was, camping. we went camping. But they didn't know. We went, didn't want to tell. It was embarrassing, kind of. We didn't want to tell them that we actually were staying in boxes, houses made out of boxes, and we were staying in tents, and that we were picking fruit, you know, this whole time. Families would run into each other during the summer, and then later, the kids would recognize each other at school. It was always clear who the farm workers were, Manuel says. Just seeing the kids coming back, we knew who we were. And you didn't have to say anything. He says students lived in two different worlds, the farm worker families and the white families. That was until the late 50s, early 60s, the tail end of the Dust Bowl migration when white field workers from Texas and other states came to Woodlake. And some of the kids, we, they came to school with no shoes. And we were amazed at this. You gotta be kidding, why, why would they come to school with no shoes. And I remember the school right away, that the nurses and whoever it was, they took care of that and they bought, got them shoes and the pretty soon they had glasses and stuff like that. But you know, I, but I, we sort of figured out, you know, man, those guys, are, those guys are poor. Once he learned their story, he could relate to them. And the funny thing is, now when Manuel shares his story with people he grew up with, people who weren't farm workers, they always say the same thing. Wow. You know, we didn't know this. This is, this is amazing. And I understand, and I, I perfectly understand. It's because we did live in another world. I love that line, we didn't know. It rings true, and that's why story matters. It allows us to know. And this place, the San Joaquin Valley, that historian Gerald Haslam called the other California, when you hear the stories of people here, it isn't the other anymore. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. What started out as a project to make it easier for the public to understand how policy is crafted has grown to become Fresno Land, a nonprofit that, in partnership with the Fresno Bee, covers topics like housing, water, development, and inequality in the San Joaquin Valley. This week, its executive director, Danielle Bergstrom, announced an expansion of that work, and I checked in with her to learn more. So this week, you announced that Fresno Land has moved into phase 3.0, which includes a new website. But for context, especially for those who may not be familiar with Fresno Land, can you go back to the beginning and share how this came about and how it has evolved over the years? Yeah, thanks for asking that. So um, a little bit of background about myself. I'm 
an urban planner by training and have worked in a lot of different roles in which I've worked as an, a planner and a policy researcher and analyst. And I started Fresno Land because I felt like I wanted to see more um, deep uh, public conversations about public policy. And I felt like the version of events that people got uh, in the public through the news or in different or different methods was very surface level. And I've often been the person sitting in um, these rooms where a lot of these decisions are discussed, whether it's, you know, a ballot measure or where to put a new park or how to invest a lot of resources. And I thought if people actually knew what was happening, they would have a different view about a lot of these um, issues. So anyways, I started Fresno Land to really be a place where we could make these debates public. And um, as a non-journalist, my view of what that could be was more, um, let's do a lot of research and then let's partner with journalists and storytellers to tell that research so it's not inaccessible in a white paper. And over time that has evolved. We've had a lot of conversations with friends and colleagues and neighbors and residents to you know, what makes the most sense. And in 2020, we launched our partnership with the Fresno Bee. Um, where we hired a team of journalists to um, really tell these stories internally and, and build that capacity within Fresno Land. And, and here we are now in 2022 with our own site and I'm excited to keep telling those stories in different ways. Well, I know you're not a journalist by training, but at this point, you've been deeply involved in the reporting of, of a lot of, of important stories. And, you know, and I'll be perfectly frank, I'm a big fan of the work that you're doing because I appreciate the need for the kind of in-depth, long-form journalism that journalists with Fresno Land uh, are producing. One thing that I, I think the public may not appreciate is how incredibly time consuming and resource heavy it, it is to do that kind of, of reporting. To help people get a better sense of that work, maybe you could pick a story that um, Fresno Land has produced and break down what went behind the reporting of that story just to demonstrate how that kind of journalism differs from the kind of run and gun, you know, send a reporter out and they turn a story in a couple hours kind of journalism that I think most people associate with the profession. Yeah, um, it is a lot of work and um, we try to be thoughtful. So thank you for, for recognizing that. We did a series of stories last year and we continue to report on Measure C, which is Fresno County's um, transportation sales tax. It's likely to be on the ballot this November. There's a lot of controversy surrounding that. And when we launched the series last year, before we got into the reporting, there was a lot of conversation about, well, first of all, do people even know what Measure C is? Um, if they do, like, what are their questions about transportation and what are the concerns that pop up? So we did a lot of focus groups with people in the community just to learn like what's kind of the baseline understanding of this issue and what's a good starting point from a reporting perspective to kind of frame the questions that we should be asking in the reporting. So we started there and then we also had a lot of questions about where the money was being spent in the past on Measure C and did a lot of requests with the Fresno County Transportation Authority to learn about the spending put together our own databases um, about how those transportation dollars are getting spent. Um, and that takes time, building, building your own database always takes a lot of time, always you know, requires a lot of double checking of where the, the data is coming from. Um, and, and then you have to talk to people and vet their stories and run that against the data. And, um, and so that's, you know, it takes several months to kind of put something like that together. I think we're always, you know, finding ways of, of bringing data to our journalism and, uh, and trying to be fast about it because, you know, that's part of journalism, right? You want to be able to tell stories in real time and not, you know, researchers are kind of able to jump in and look more retrospectively about an issue. And we're trying to bring people like current data so that to inform the debates as they're happening. And, um, and so sometimes what we're, what we're doing is, is a work in progress. Uh, we've just released a database of um, campaign donations last week that all of the candidates for city council and board of supervisors have. And that was a process in and of itself to produce that database. But um, we're hoping that 
we can keep producing uh, data series like that in real time to help people inform their decisions. And then with this website, this kind of reporting is available to the public without a paywall, right? It's free to people. It's free. Yeah. It's that, free. That's a big deal. Yeah. That's, I mean, and that's core to our mission, right? We're a nonprofit. We've always been a nonprofit. Um, and we know that journalism, like we just talked about, takes a lot of time and resources to produce. So the, the fact that it's free means that someone is paying for it. And you know, as a nonprofit, we have a lot of philanthropic support. We have a lot of donors that make sure that this work can be produced free. We know that not every news organization is set up to be that way. And that's why, you know, we value the subscription model that the B has and understand why it exists. We also know that in our region, a lot of people paying, you know, $10 a month, $20 a month is too big of a lift. And um, we want to make this as easy and accessible as possible. Well, June primary ballots are due Tuesday, and Fresno Land has developed an interactive guide to help voters make informed decisions. Tell us about that guide. Yeah, so we um, we are super excited to have our first voter guide, and we decided in this version just to focus on hyper-local races. So there's four seats um, on the Fresno City Council, there's two seats um, open on the Fresno County Board of Supervisors. And then there's three seats open on the Madera County Board of Supervisors right now. Some of those seats are held by incumbents. Some of them are um, open races that have multiple challengers. And we um, put out a survey to all of the candidates running for those offices. And we wanted to get those candidates on the record in their own words on everything that we cover from affordable housing to um, where industrial uses should go to climate change to um, who you know who should be getting subsidies when new jobs come in and while not all candidates responded to our survey and we understand that it's a busy season for everyone um, the responses that we got back in were very enlightening and so those are part of our our guide we also included like I, I talked about earlier this database and interactive charts that show where the money's coming in and we feel like while it's important to hear from candidates in their own words about their views on affordable housing or new development or where jobs should go. The money also speaks for itself. And we classified all of the donations into developers and business interests and PACs, uh, labor unions, and then of course individuals. And that tells a story and you learn, you know, developers have, um, probably no surprise to most people, uh, a lot of influence in local politics here in the Fresno, greater Fresno area. And you start to see a story told about who developers are giving to. Different types of developers give to different candidates. You know, some suburban developers will only support one candidate, but different types of developers, you know, industrial developers or, you know, shopping center developers might support another. So it's a good way of learning about the interests that dominate local politics. And um, I encourage everyone to check it out. You know, it's very much in alignment with, with the mission of Fresno Land, which my understanding is it's all about transparency. Um, and another program that you that you operate is the, the Documenters program. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, Documenters is a program that we launched in partnership with City Bureau, which is a media lab based in Chicago. And um, what we do is we train and pay community members, literally anyone from the community, um, to cover public meetings. And they either do that through live tweeting a public meeting, or they do that through taking notes about that meeting, and then that gets posted on our website. And this is a function that um, a lot of newsrooms used to be able to do, traditional beat journalism on government bodies. So a journalist would attend you know, the Fresno City Council meeting, the Fresno Planning Commission meeting, listen to what happens, write it up, gets published the next day in the paper. And that has been lost as the, the nature and the business of news has changed. But we think that that function of just delivering what happened at these meetings is so important to our, our um, public discourse. And so we're happy to be able to provide that. Um, there was a really contentious um, planning commission meeting in Fresno last night. We had a documentary live tweeting it. Um, and I think just having that debate open and um, on display helps a lot more people really understand how these decisions are made and, and what they, may, they might be able to do to get more involved in the process. 
I've been talking with Danielle Bergstrom, the executive director of Fresno Land, which just launched a new website. Danielle, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Kathleen. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. We're just a few days away from the primaries, and one of the biggest local races shaping up is Congressional District 22, which includes parts of Bakersfield, as well as Tulare, Hanford, and Kettleman City. It's currently held by Republican David Valadeo, whose main challenger is Democratic Assemblymember Rudy Salas. It's a race that's getting national attention. Joining me now to talk more about it is KVPR reporter Sarith Hawk. Welcome, Sarith. Thanks, Kathleen. So why has this Central Valley congressional race become one to watch this election? Well, there are a few reasons. As you mentioned, this race has national implications. Democrats are looking to hold on to their House majority, but Republicans aren't that far behind. And so a key number of seats in swing districts like District 22 could make or break a party's control of the House. And as we've seen, whether the House of Representatives flips parties will have a pretty significant impact, especially with a lot of high stakes issues that we're seeing right now. You know, inflation, gun control, abortion, Ukraine. I spoke with Fresno State political science professor Tom Holyoke about why that makes this race and this election so hard to predict. If the election was really just going to be held about the economy and inflation, uh, Republicans would be almost guaranteed to win. Uh, With abortion and gun control all of a sudden erupting as huge issues, that's really mixed things up a lot. And I don't think anyone at this point is quite sure what the political dynamic is going to be come November. I certainly don't. And I don't think anyone else does either. It's just, there's just these huge shocks that have hit the political system. And that makes, it makes it really hard to predict what's going to happen. So speaking of national impact, we know that Valadeo was one of 10 Republicans in the House of Representatives who voted for articles of impeachment against President Trump. Is that going to hurt him at all in this race? You know, Professor Holyoke didn't seem to think so. And that's after the party has gone after others pretty heavily, like Liz Cheney in Wyoming. And the thinking behind that is that Republicans really do need him that badly. President Trump has not said much to condemn Valadeo because the party needs all the Republican votes it can get to keep this district from turning blue again. Here's Professor Holyoke with more on that. Congressman Valadeo has shown himself to be someone who can really hold on in a, in a, in a Democratic-leaning district. And that's a valuable commodity for the Republicans. The House Republicans are really hoping that they will regain majority control of the House. And there's a good chance that they will, which would probably mean that our one of our other local politicians, Kevin McCarthy, might actually become the Speaker of the House. Um, but that requires people like David Valadeo to survive. You know, it's really interesting that Valadeo is a Republican in a Democratic-leaning district. How does that help or hurt his chances of holding on to that seat? Yeah, you know, Valadeo has always had to fight hard to keep his seat. He left the assembly for a successful run in 2012 and 2014, but then in 2018, he actually lost to Democratic challenger T.J. Cox. And he won the seat back again in 2020, and the margins were pretty close. You know, So for one, the voters are familiar with him, and he's been known to work across party lines on issues that have appealed to Democrats, such as voting against President Trump. But voters are also familiar with Rudy Salas, who's been serving essentially the same constituency as an assembly member since 2012. So you have two very experienced politicians now competing in a newly drawn district that is even more Democratic leaning than before. All things that could work against Valadeo. Can you talk more about the impact of redistricting on these campaigns? Yeah, you know, the district looks much different than before. Professor Holyoke says it's almost like they're getting to know their voters again. The, uh, the district that used to be uh, Devin Nunes's district has essentially been dismembered. And pieces of that have gone into the district that Valadeo and Salas are going to fight over. Other parts went into actually Kevin McCarthy's district, it looks like. So a lot, the borders have really changed. And that, of course, means that both Valadeo and Salas and other people running for office are going to have to campaign in constituencies that are new for them. That that means they're going to have to work 
extra hard because they have to, even though they're incumbents, they have to introduce themselves to a whole new set of people. When we're looking at a primary in a midterm year, what can we learn from voter turnout? Well, you know, first off, this primary is really to determine the top two vote getters in this race. And it's predicted that that will be Valadeo and Salas. But Professor Holyoke says Tuesday is really about watching how both candidates perform in this primary. That could determine how they fare against each other come November. Primaries tend to be rather low turnout, which means that whichever candidate is best able to mobilize his or her base and get his or her voters out to the polls has a significant advantage. The lower the turnout is, the the greater your chances are if you're really well organized at the grassroots level and ready to get your supporters to the polls. And, you know, we're already seeing a lot of money being poured into this race. We can expect much more of that from both parties as we get closer to November. Yes, indeed. Well, Sarith, thank you so much for your reporting. Thanks, Kathleen. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Bakersfield's Art Williams made history in the 1970s when he became the second black umpire in Major League Baseball and the very first in the National League. But as a new book by Art Williams' younger brother, Dr. Audie Williams, shows, it was a remarkable life cut short far too soon at the age of just 44. I spoke with Dr. Williams about the book, along with filmmaker Ed Bartell who is producing a documentary about Art Williams' journey from farm work to the big leagues. So I'd like to start on that day in 1972 when Art Williams made history as the National League's first Black umpire. Now, Adi, you were there in San Diego to support your big brother on that day. What was it like? Oh, it was almost like a, a dream come true. You know, I... I'll have to fall back on my brother's word, unbelievable, that he used quite often to me and my family. Well, my wife and and two daughters were there, too, along with my mother and my wife's mother. Uh, It was just it was just unbelievable. It was a dream that that my brother had and that we were praying and supporting him along with his wife for him to get to that point. And he, he, he made it. You know, when we drove up to the gate, Art introduced himself, told the guard at the gate who he was. The guard looked at the sheet of paper and said, go on in, Mr. Williams. And uh, he let them know that the car behind him was was relatives. This beckoned me on in. I mean, it was just it's something that I will never forget. You know, it was just just wonderful. You know, it was, it was a pleasure just to see him making uh, his dream. So it's hard to describe. Absolutely, absolutely. So you you titled your book Unbelievable, and you said that's a a word that he used often. Can you just give us a sense of how far Art had to come from his uh, childhood in, in Arkansas to his time working in the fields in Bakersfield all the way to the National League? Okay, well, he was born in a cabin in, in Arkansas uh, where his parents were sharecropping. You know, they, they, my dad and mother was out laboring in the field, and what they would do, they would put Art on a sack and drag him through the, on down the rows uh, and, you know, while they picked cotton. Uh, and when he was about four years old, Art got off the sack, and started picking cotton and putting it in a papa's uh, sack and my, my mama's sack. So my dad looked at him, and that evening he went home and made him a sack. And so Art started pulling sacks down those rows when he was four years old, and, and he was picking cotton. And eventually we all came to Bakersfield because my dad had discovered that there was higher possibilities in, in California than there were in Arkansas. So it brought us all the Bakersfield, which is seven of us. And uh, we stayed in a, we call it a camp, a 
and work camp just south of Biggersville. And that's when Art first started the school. And my, day, my dad would allow Art and my siblings to attend school, but they went after school, they had to come home and change into the other pair of clothes that they had and go to the fields and work. I know that it was his ability to, to play baseball that made such a big difference in his life and really changed the trajectory of his life. And, and he played, he played, uh, you know, briefly on a professional basis, but um, an injury uh, prevented that career from continuing. How did he become an umpire? Okay. Yes, you're right. He, he uh, was a very good baseball player. Matter of fact, out of high school, when he was 18, he didn't finish high school. But when he was 18, he uh, was signed by the Detroit Tigers, and he was the first black pitcher that was signed by the Detroit Tigers in, in 1952. Then he was fortunate enough to play for a farm team in Bakersfield, which uh, a farm team of the Detroit Tigers. Uh, and he did very well his first year in professional baseball. Matter of fact, his first pro First game he pitched was in Santa Barbara, and he went 16 innings and won. The, he pitched 16 innings and won the game. And after his first year, they were offering him an opportunity to uh, try out for AAA, which is next to the major league. But uh, he got he got a call from a representative of the Detroit Tigers and told him that, you know, he was welcome to try out for the team, but they wasn't going to play his way back to Florida. Uh, and Art had gotten married during his first year of baseball. So Art, he couldn't afford to pay his way back there. So they offered him another uh, position in Georgia to, it was, I think it was a double, double A team. Uh, but my parents were really concerned by his safety going back to Georgia. So uh, then they offered another position in uh, Idaho. So he did b-ball so he took that went to idaho and hurt his arm there was it really was pitching him too too much you know they wasn't back in those days they didn't think about preservation of his arm or anything so he uh stayed in pro about two or three years after that then he decided not to play any more professional baseball he got a job with the city which he eventually came a became a uh supervisor which was a good job back in those days. And becoming a supervisor for a black man was exceptionally well. He became a supervisor, and he kind of backed up in baseball for a while until his first son, Art Jr., started playing uh, baseball. And he met his baseball coach in high school, Carl Barra. And Barra was the administrator of that organization. So he uh, encouraged Art to get involved as far as uh, umpiring. So Art started umpiring in, uh, in JBA, and uh, he started umpiring in high school, and uh, he met and became friends to uh, Bob Engel, who was already a, a major league umpire. And he talked to Art about uh, considering uh, becoming a professional umpire. You know, Ed, I'd, I'd love to bring you into this conversation. Ed Bartell, you're a documentary filmmaker based in Atlanta, and you came out to Bakersfield to shoot a documentary about the life of Art Williams. How did you discover his story, and what compelled you to make a film about it? Well, my wife is good friends with Art's niece, and they were talking one day, and we would never, me nor my wife, never heard of Art Williams. And she brought him up and said, you know, this is history that needs to be told. And so I said, well, I make documentaries. I like telling people stories. So let me come out and uh, meet, you know, Dr. Adi and hear his story. And let's just put something small together. Just something, you know, 20 minutes for the family so that other nieces and nephews and, and the rest of the family members could know our story and I had the pleasure of coming there uh, this past January and filming and as I learned the whole story of art 
I said, this is bigger than just a small family film. This needs to be something that goes out into the world. And that's where we are right now is preparing to create a full feature-length documentary for the world to learn about our ways. So I understand that uh, Dr. Adi was, uh, had started writing a book about his brother Art years ago, but that it was Ed's interest in documenting the Art Williams story that inspired uh, the finishing of, of that book project. Uh, Dr. Adi, is that right? Yes. Uh, and uh, matter of fact, my daughters pulled the book out and read it, and they started talking to me, Dad, this is history. You know, you, you, you need to finish this and get it out there. And my wife, Jody, was also encouraging me. Then I met Ed, and he was he started encouraging me and his wife also, Angela. And so I decided to go ahead and finish it. You know, it was it was it was a little difficult task for me to finish because, you know, some of those things a lot of things put in that book was very personal. But I went on and did it. And I'm I'm glad it's out there because when I started writing it twenty years ago, there were people that was that were aware that I was writing this book, and they were anxious to get it and and uh, wanted to know when I was going to finish it. You know, so uh, I should have told them I, I would finish it in 2022, but I I didn't know then. Well, you know, one of the things that jumps out at me when when looking back on the work that you both have done to document the life of Art Williams is that it's a story that is inspirational certainly um but it's certain it's also a story of struggle and and even after breaking that barrier uh to become the the first uh black umpire in the national league you know certainly art williams faced his fair share of racism ed can you just uh, detail a little bit about what you learned about that it, it, it was amazing because during the time that he came up and went through first just wanting to be an umpire that you could say that today and be like, huh? But definitely back then and with all the climate of racism and, and where he came from to the South, but even despite all that he went through, he stayed a gentleman. He stayed someone who did not keep that on his shoulder. He didn't hold grudges and he still saw everybody as equal and saw you, whether you were white or black, as someone good. And that's what really amazed uh, me about it, because it was it was everywhere. It was everywhere he went, you know, uh, there's a stat sheet that shows where he had to throw people out of the game. And they give the reason. And a couple of the reasons were players would literally run into him. And it's, it's against the rules to run into the umpire. But they felt so little of him that they felt, oh, I can just do that. He doesn't matter. And the insults from the crowd of them calling him a gorilla and different things, and he kept it cool. He never got emotional about it. He did his job. He did his task. Because white or black, nobody likes the umpire. (laughs) You're the one that's most likely going to make a call that may not go in your favor. And he umpired in games where it didn't go in everyone's favor. And on top of him being black, him being the guy that was still the one in charge, his word was final. And a lot of people didn't uh, like that, but he kept a cool head about it. And that really um, impressed me. So the book, Unbelievable, The Life Journey of Art Williams, baseball's first black National League umpire, is now available on Amazon. Dr. Adi, what do you want the world to remember of your brother? Well, you know, uh, first of all, that he was resilient. You know, he was dedicated to his job. He said himself that he is an umpire, but first of all, he's a black man. He's I'm a black man, first of all. And that I, I just uh, have a job to do, and I go out there and do my job. Regardless of my uh, pigmentation, I'll do my job. And... You know, I just want to let him know that he was just a, he was a good-hearted person, too. You know, and he realized that he was going down a journey that was nobody else had done before. 
for the National League. Emmett Asher did it in the, in the American League, but he just wanted to be the best that he could be. There was an article about him telling about how many people he had kicked out the, the uh, years of his umpire, which they said was high. And and then in the article, it was it stated that Art was mad. And you know, let's stick with my that stuck in my mind. I said Art. You know, he never was the type of person to get mad. I've never seen him mad. Ang- no, they say he was angry. I said, I've never seen him angry, you know. And although he had reasons to be angry, he never was, you know. He was just he was, he was just a good person, you know. And he was strong, too. And he, he played an instrumental part in my life, too, you know, because of him and my wife pushed me on forward, too. So... And I just want people to know that, hey, you know, you can go further than you think if you are persistent and believe in yourself. And first of all, you believe in God, but you know, let him know that he was just a, he's not, a, he wasn't all, all those things, all those, all those things he went through in life, that didn't anger him. It just made him a better person. Well, before we wrap up, uh, Ed, if folks want to support your work um, on the documentary or take a look at some of the footage that you've produced so far, how can they do that? Uh, We have a uh, GoFundMe page, and it's under Art Williams. uh, His uh, complete title is Unbelievable, the Art Williams story, but you can search it by just typing in Art Williams. And you can contribute there as we're beginning the first processes of making this a Netflix quality, broadcast quality documentary. Um, And the actual uh, short version of what we've done so far is on YouTube, uh, also titled Unbelievable, the Art Williams Story. Well, I've been talking with documentary filmmaker Ed Bartell and Dr. Audie Williams, the brother of Art Williams um, and the subject of the book, Unbelievable. Thank you both so much for, for taking the time to talk with me. My pleasure, Kathleen. And finally, on Saturday, the Fresno Rainbow Pride Parade returns to the Tower District for the first time since the start of the pandemic. And as a new podcast by Fresno State students shows, the parade is an important part of the history of Fresno's LGBTQ community. I spoke with three of the students behind the podcast, Jason Kilmeyer, Madison Nichols, and Jasleen Gill, who started by explaining what motivated them to use a project in a history class to explore the decades-long struggle for LGBTQ equality in the Central Valley. We came to this idea, or at least I personally did, after seeing a pretty surprising photo, and it's on our website. It's a photo of a think two like fully robed KKK members at one of the first pride parades in Fresno, I believe the 1994 parade. And seeing that image was just really surprising to me because I never really associated Fresno in that era with like an active KKK presence or even being um, in an area like the Tower District where the, par- where the parade was taking place. So that photo for myself kind of inspired a curiosity into how that situation came to be, why the Tower District that we know now, how the KKK was comfortable enough to go and protest there. And so from there, we kind of started digging into what the first parade, the first Pride Parade looked like and how it came to be. And that kind of evolved into a larger project looking into the the larger history of the Fresno gay community and how it formed the challenges that they faced and the ways that the community came together in times that it wasn't so accepted to be out and open and prideful and how um, they transitioned with the parade and other community groups into the more out and proud gay community centered in the Tower District that we all are familiar with today. Absolutely. I learned so much from your podcast, and I just think it's such an important part of Fresno's history. 
I, I'm so impressed that you were able to document it uh, so well, so beautifully. So this Saturday, the Fresno Rainbow Pride Parade returns to the Tower District after, uh, you know, a long break because of the pandemic. Uh, and, and as I learned from your podcast, you know, Fresno held its first Pride Parade in 1991. And, and that history behind that first parade is really quite stunning. Madison, perhaps you can pick up the story there. What did you learn about that first parade? Honestly, a lot of the people that we got a chance to interview with weren't at like the initial like planning and everything. So it was really interesting to just hear about how they kind of just went and how short the parade was um, how like scary it was for them, but how like liberating it really felt. So it was really interesting to learn about, I guess, just the the background of the parade. We didn't really get um, too in de- like depth about like ha- like the behind the scenes. It was just kind of like what happened at the parade. Um, so it was really interesting to get to learn about that. And we got to learn about how there was this group that led the parade. They were called Bikes on Bikes and how they led the parade for a really long time and how they actually scared members of the KKK away. So just like learning little things like that was really interesting. And I think it helped bring the idea of the Pride Parade like alive and how it is still going today because of things like that. Jackson, I don't know if you uh, wanted to further elaborate on that point. Yeah, I mean, the the first Pride Parade, as we we kind of quote um, for one of our interviews in the podcast, it's, it, it is a culmination of, of a lot of things that happened before. A, a lot of people associate the, the Pride Parade as kind of the, it's an event that kind of marks something, but there was a lot of history and organization even before that. That is that's really important, and um, we were really interested in looking at that helped the parade come to fruition. While we don't have the the organization of the parade um, known to us because we couldn't find anyone to talk to about it, um, it, it I think kind of the um, the organizations and bars and all these things before the first pride parade kind of um, give a hint to what the organization may have been like. And you were able to talk to, well, you weren't able to talk to the people behind the the first Pride Parade necessarily. You did speak to many early activists in, in the Fresno area, people like Peter Robertson and Chris Jarvis, who have played such a significant role in, um, in advocating for the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, Jasleen, it must have been really, um, must have been very uh, remarkable hearing the accounts of, of what it was like to be uh, a member of the community back in the 1980s during the AIDS crisis and, and even earlier than that? It definitely was. I think a couple of our interviews got a little emotional um, on our parts and, and for the guests that we were interviewing because it's a hard history sometimes for people to talk about, about the struggles that they went through and the discrimination and the hate that they experience. But that was also part of the reason that we wanted to do this podcast because we we knew it was so important to record these histories of you know elders in these in these communities that are often marginalized and they aren't a part of the mainstream culture or even the mainstream um, mainstream academia. And so that was another reason that we were really excited to do this project was to get to record these people telling not just their accounts of the parade or um, or the activism that they did, but their life stories as well and their love stories and how they came out and all of those things. So I think it was just really inspiring getting to hear hear where they came from and get to understand how all of the hardship and all of the hard work that they did um, in the 70s and 80s and 90s has created an atmosphere and a culture that is relatively much more accepting and open to to the LGBTQ community. Madison, as, as you look back on this project, is there something in particular that you learned along the way that really surprised you? 
I would say I was really surprised to learn the impact that the gay bars held in like the LGBTQ community, because honestly, when I was thinking about the pride parade, I kind of just assumed it just happened because of like these, you know, a group of LGBTQ like uh, people got together and we're like, hey, we should have a parade because there's parades in San Francisco and LA and we don't want to have to keep going there. And so I kind of just like figured that it came out through there. But then we learned a lot about the bar scene that really was the reason that all of these like these members were able to get together and like discuss what kind of changes they wanted in Fresno. And I feel like they are what really built the Tower District and the Pride Parade. Jackson, what do you hope people take from this podcast? Um, I hope people take away that uh, Fresno does have a rich uh, LGBTQ history. It um, is often regarded a very conservative place. And um, I think it's important to acknowledge um, the history that does exist here for these people that have um, been marginalized. So yeah, I think I think that's what is most important takeaway from this project. So Jasleen, I'm going to give you the last word. If folks want to listen to the podcast, uh, where can they find it? Our podcast is linked on our website, and the website address is bit.ly/ourtower. And on that website, you can find our podcast along with photos and articles that we discuss um, in the podcast. Fantastic. I've been talking with Fresno State students, Jasleen Gill, Jackson Kilmeyer, and Madison Nichols about their podcast, Our Tower, that looks at the history of the LGBTQ plus community in Fresno. Thank you all for being on the show. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And that's today's Valley Edition. You can hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You can also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. The show is produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org slash health equity.